Uh, In Matthew 13, uh, which we're now into our fourth and final week of, uh, Jesus tells actually eight different parables. I think it's the uh, most dense collection of stories that Jesus tells. Uh, And they're all about the kingdom of heaven. He says explicitly, each one of these tells us something about the kingdom of heaven. There's the eight of them. Uh, There's a sower and the seed, there's wheat and weeds, mustard seed, leaven, treasure, pearl, the net, which we just read and we're going to talk about, and then another tiny one uh, about the master of the house. We're not going to talk, we're not going to have time to get into the master of the house one. You could read that for yourself, it's just a few verses down, Uh, but we're speaking today about the net, the man uh, who goes fishing, gathers in fish of all kinds And then the men sit down and sort them out, Uh, the good and the bad and the bad get burned up in fire. Uh, In a way, like there's eight parables there, or out of the seven that we're going to cover together, you could almost reduce it down to just three uh, with overlapping themes. There's this theme of growth, uh, which covers uh, all of the first uh, four at least. Uh, there's, uh, and you can see from the first three that they're all uh, agricultural sort of thing. There's all something, a seed that is planted, there's a crop that is growing and then even the story of the leaven uh, is, a, is, about, uh, is about yeast that goes into a dough and spreads and causes the dough then even to rise. Uh, there's a couple of parables we looked at together uh, in quick succession about uh, the worth of the kingdom. So there's the growth of the kingdom and there's the worth of the kingdom and the kingdom of heaven is likened to discovering a great treasure uh, or a perfect precious pearl. Uh, And then the third theme, I said, uh, and look, there's themes within themes and there's a lot of other things. I'm being uh, pretty broad here. But the third one is this theme of cleansing, the cleansing of the kingdom of heaven. And today's parable on the net comes into that. Uh, but actually, it's a, it's a theme that has been brought up uh, also in the parable of the sower and the seed, to some extent, and the wheat and the weeds. It's not quite true that you could tell all these seven parables in just three, that there's only three themes. Like I said, uh, there's overlap, as you can see. Parables about growth, for example, are also about cleansing. Uh, but also, uh, the beauty of the parables or, or the fact that, you know, they're stories and illustrations that capture imagination uh, and sort of talk about earthy, uh, fleshy things that we recognise and know, uh, those are things that each of them together combine uh, to lend uh, understanding uh, and even to lend colour uh, to the message that Jesus is trying to proclaim. Uh, it's little wonder that Jesus not only speaks truth, uh, but he's a gifted speaker as well. He's the son of God after all. He knows what he's doing when he communicates. Uh, but uh, this is part of why there's multiple parables giving similar lessons, is that each of them lend a unique colour uh, to the lesson that he's giving. So, for example, take the mustard seed and the leaven in the dough, which we looked at two weeks ago. Uh, they are both about the growth of the kingdom of heaven and they're almost identical in the way the story develops in one a tiny seed grows into a tree in the other a small amount of yeast works through the dough and then even grows the dough but you'll notice if you look back at that uh, that in verse 31 the seed is sowed by a man and in verse 33 the dough is kneaded by a woman 
Now, that's not to dictate anything about traditional gender roles or to box people in, uh, but it's told like this, with this colour, uh, to include and involve both genders in the discussion, uh, using images that will speak to different people in different ways from their own personal experience. That's colour. Uh, that's why Jesus gives different stories, to reach different people. Uh, or like we looked at last week, uh, the parables of the treasure and the pearl, they're almost identical. A man finds something valuable and sells everything he has so he can own it. One of the valuable things is a treasure, the other one is a pearl. Uh, the difference between treasure and pearl is almost immaterial. It's the same story in each case, except for that difference, which I highlighted last week, that the first man who stumbles on the treasure seems to stumble on it by discovery, almost, uh, sorry, by accident, almost as if he's going about work in the field and then, oh, treasure. Uh, and he discovers something he never knew he needed before. Whereas in the second story, the merchant who finds the pearl, well, he was searching for a pearl. This is a spiritual seeker who's been looking for answers and seeking them out and who is pleased to finally discover the truth in the Lord Jesus. And so God's kingdom truly is for everyone and Jesus Christ can meet every need, uh, whether it's a need that you knew you had or a need that you never knew you had. And so this is why we have different stories uh, to give different bits of colour. And to, in today's case, we have another parable that is almost identical in terms of storyline to one of the parables before. Uh, it's almost identical to the story of the wheat and the weeds that we looked at together two weeks ago. So here's what happens. Again, uh, the story almost matches on one for one. A harvest is gathered. In one of them, it's a crop of wheat. In the other, it's a haul of fish. But in both cases, a harvest is gathered in. And the harvest, as it turns out, is a mixed bag of good and bad quality. There's wheat with weeds mixed in and there's fish with bad fish mixed in. Uh, and then the harvest is sorted. Uh, good wheat versus weeds, and then good fish versus bad fish. Both times, Jesus says it's sorted by angels. And the bad in both times is thrown into the fiery furnace. And both times it says, Jesus says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So why two parables that are almost identical uh, in narrative? What's the colour that he's doing? Uh, what's the different point that he's making? What is added by retelling the same story further down? And I would say that it's, it's essentially because Jesus didn't want the point of cleansing, the cleansing of the kingdom, to be missed. Because as you can see from up here, the, the parable of the wheat and the weeds, it comes in a bracket of parables that were primarily about the growth of the kingdom. And I preached on it in that way, talking about growth. And maybe you noticed two weeks ago, I made almost no mention of the sentence where Jesus says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Even though really, as you read it, that stands out. But it can almost get lost in that bracket of teaching about the growth. And so I think that's part of why Jesus revisits with a fresh parable about the fish, telling almost the same story, but majoring this time on judgment, on the, on the cleansing of the kingdom. So we're talking about uh, the cleansing of the kingdom. Uh, like at other times, Jesus gives the parable first, 
and then he gives its explanation. And I'm actually going to work backwards. Uh, we've sort of already covered, I think, the story of the parable, the, the narrative itself. Uh, the explanation gives the facts, uh, and the parable gives the colour. Uh, and together, they give a warning, a warning against presumption. We're going to talk about what that means um, and, uh, and how we can heed that warning. That's really the point of this, a warning against presumption. So let's look at the explanation first, the facts. So Jesus has already told the parable and then he says in verses 49 and 50, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Just going to pick it apart a bit at a time. So it will be at the end of the age. What are the facts? Uh, Jesus says uh, these things are still to come. We are in one age. This age will come to an end. And these are events that are still to come. The kingdom of heaven, uh, which is what Jesus is talking about and what we're trying to learn about. The kingdom of heaven is both a present reality and a future reality. And it has a different form in the present and in the future. Uh, At the end of the age, at a time still to come, the present shape of the kingdom will be altered uh, because the kingdom by that time will be cleansed. Uh, What will happen? How will this cleansing take place? Well, these are more facts. Jesus says, uh, and he's not talking in riddles or parables here. This is straight up facts. He says the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. A fact that I suspect few of us have really pondered before, and yet this is the fact as Jesus presents it. God will divinely judge. I wonder what you think about uh, sort of the pattern of human history. Uh, Do you think the world is getting better, or do you think the world is getting worse? Odds are, if you're over a certain age, you think, oh, everything's going downhill fast. Maybe if you're under a certain age, you think, no, no, I think science is improving things. Maybe you're a bit more optimistic. Or do you think that we're doing neither? We're not getting better and we're not getting worse. Do you think we're essentially just on a great big swing uh, where we keep finding fresh ways of basically just repeating ourselves in different directions? Either way, the present trajectory or the pattern that we're in It will be arrested one day. It will be stopped. And God will divinely judge. The mysterious beyond of heaven will break in. Beings from heaven, God's angels, will sort the good and the bad. And they will use God's measuring stick to do it. You might look at words in there like um, how they're going to separate the evil from the righteous and wonder where it is you sit on that spectrum. As it turns out, it's not a spectrum at all. It's one or the other. So which are you? You might look at words like evil and righteous and feel like you have a pretty good idea of where you sit. But on this day, that final day, the only opinion of where you sit that will matter is God's. Because it's his kingdom after all. And that day is his day. And it's his angels. He doesn't say, uh, okay, good over here and evil over here. And you guys sort yourselves out. You basically know what's going on. 
That's not the picture of the last day of the kingdom that he presents at all. It's a day where all will be gathered and he will do the sorting. There's a danger, there's a warning in here against presumption. Don't presume or be careful about where you presume you fall. The next part of the explanation uh, majors primarily on the fate of the evil ones more than the fate of the good. It says the angels will throw them, the evil ones, into the fiery furnace. Here's the facts according to Jesus. Hell is real. It is the place of God's justice and his wrath. It is likened in scripture again and again to an incinerator designed to destroy all evidence and influence of wickedness. Now, I know that maybe by nature and maybe by training, uh, we've learnt to be pretty uncomfortable with the teaching of hell. But just to interrupt that discomfort that maybe you're feeling for a moment, there is a part of this that is blindingly good news. Because who wouldn't want all evidence and influence of wickedness to be wiped off the planet? Who doesn't want justice for the sake of the downtrodden or the abused? Who hasn't once wondered how God can allow such evil and suffering to continue? Well, in some respects, hell is a glorious hope. What a refreshing relief that the now of God's kingdom is not the finished product the promise of a future purification will be fulfilled. Wrongs will be set right. Sin will be punished and justice will reign uninhibited on earth as it is in heaven. But of course it's not entirely good news uh, because there are those who will be swept away in the judgment. And it's described like this. Jesus says in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The coming fire should put a fire under every one of us right now to both escape that fire uh, and to rescue others from it. To escape the fire for yourself through uh, what Jesus commands, by repentance, by running headlong to him, the son of God, the one he has chosen. And to rescue others by, um, to pick a few verses from the Bible, we should be seeking to rescue others by living such good lives among the unsaved that they will see your good deeds and glorify God. And then we should seek to rescue others uh, by proclaiming in both words and actions, but in words, proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. We should seek to escape the fires ourselves through repentance and running to the Son, the Lord Jesus, and to rescue others by living such good lives that they will recognise the glories of God and by proclaiming with our words the hope in Jesus Christ. And this is where I again introduce the warning that we've had printed up there the whole time, this warning against presumption. 
It's these words that for me particularly draw out, these words that are highlighted up here now, that particularly draw out uh, that this parable is here as a warning against presumption. Uh, What I mean by this is that in the parable, Jesus is issuing a warning that not everyone who thinks they are saved will be saved. Not everyone who thinks they are saved will be saved. And it's this phrase up here that's a clue, weeping and gnashing of teeth. I wonder what you think gnashing of teeth means. I wonder if you've ever even heard that phrase outside of the Bible. I wonder if you've uh, even heard that phrase in the Bible. Uh, In the New Testament, the gnashing of teeth appears eight times. Seven out of those eight are spoken by Jesus in this exact context. The weeping, of gnashing and, the weeping and gnashing of teeth at judgment. And out of those seven, uh, six of them are recorded by Matthew. It seems to be uh, a thing that Matthew in particular picked up in Jesus' speech and recorded again and again. And it's twice in this chapter, like I said, in the parable of the, uh, the wheat and the weeds and now in this parable of the fishing net. Chances are you've only really come across this phrase in the Bible. Chances are uh, that if you're not super familiar with the Bible, you've never come across the phrase at all, gnashing of teeth. And I would say that, uh, and look, maybe I'm just projecting my own experience onto you, but this is me, right? Uh, I have mostly come across the words gnashing of teeth in the Bible, and because it's in the Bible, it's alongside talk of a fiery judgment and weeping. And I'll be honest, I never really knew what gnashing of teeth meant. But, you know, how do we learn what words mean? We learn by looking up a dictionary. No, we don't. Who looks up dictionaries? We learn by context. We learn by just seeing what does it mean when it gets used all the time. And very occasionally we look up a dictionary. Um, I have always equated the gnashing of teeth with grief and sadness because it's paired here with weeping or with agony because it's paired here with a fiery hell. It's wrong. It's not about sadness or sorrow. And it's not about clenching or grinding your teeth in pain either. The gnashing of teeth is very specifically, and I think quite curiously, about anger. It's really about anger. Let me show you every other usage of gnashing in the Bible. There's five in the Old Testament. See if you can see anger in all of these. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. The the image is like a, a snapping dog who hates you and is trying to frighten you or intimidate you with hateful speech. Uh, like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. Mockers just spitting insults, flapping their jaw. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. He's, he's angry. He's out to get him. He's seeking vengeance. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. All your enemies rail against you. They hiss. They gnash their teeth. Do you see agony in any of this? It's anger. That's all it is. It's anger. Now, it would be very unusual if Jesus suddenly burst onto the scene and used the word completely differently. Not impossible, by the way, but that would be very unusual. Uh, When you read all of Jesus' references to gnashing as referring to anger, like in these Old Testament references, 
it puts an interesting spin on judgment. And it actually still makes sense. In fact, it makes better sense than just equating it with agony or with grief. Uh, We've been trained to think of hell as a place of agony and anguish. It is. There's fire and there's weeping. But there's also gnashing of teeth. Who thought of hell as a place of anger? A place of anger. But I actually think this single realisation that gnashing is about anger has the potential to unlock for us some really important aspect of the real-world context of our scriptures when they speak about hell. It appears that most of Jesus' warnings about hell are directed at those who think they're safe. This is really important. Jesus reserves his harshest words and his most biting criticisms not to the people who are in the pubs or the brothels or, you know... um, swearing too much on the work site. He refers it to the people who are proud in and of themselves, who think they are safe. And when they discover that they're actually going to be judged, well, that offends their sense of security. It offends their sense of self-righteousness. And they will be angry. And they will direct their anger at the one who judges them. And that will be their experience of hell. Have a look even just quickly uh, at, these, uh, at these five Old Testament references to gnashing. In one respect or another, all of these people are gnashing their teeth against the anointed chosen one of God. So in the Psalms, it's against God's anointed Messiah, the King. Uh, and then in, uh, in Job, it's, it's the great honourable man of God, Job, who has people gnashing their teeth at him. Uh, and in uh, Lamentations, it's the people of God. God's chosen ones uh, who are being being abused and insulted. Hell is a place of agony. It is a place of sadness and sorrow. And it is a place of continuing anger against the God who these people were already a little bit angry and resentful of. A God who undermines their sense of self-righteousness and their sense of safety, their sense of self-sufficiency. A God who actually demands uh, to be your Lord in all things. And so uh, this is, it's a warning against presumption. And, I th- and nearly every reference of Jesus's towards hell or something like it is a warning directed primarily at the Jewish people of his day. And let's extend this into our day. We're not still talking about the Jewish people. We're we're talking by extension about anyone who might be a bit presumptuous about their place in the kingdom of God. Here's the colour that he gives. Like I said, we've already talked about the parable itself, but as I said, he gives colour to the facts in telling a story. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. Uh, This imagery uh, of fishing uh, is really uh, important. It's really targeted. Uh, in the context of this chapter, as you read it through, Jesus, you'll discover in, in this bracket, Jesus is speaking in a house only to his disciples. Uh, and probably you're aware that a good number of Jesus' disciples were fishermen by trade before he called them. 
In another sense, every one of Jesus' disciples were fishermen. I wonder if you know what I'm referring to. Jesus says earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, when he speaks to his disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He is training and instructing every one of his disciples to preach and proclaim the gospel, the good news of the coming Son of God, and to cast the net, so to speak, far and wide, and then to draw in that net. And the fish in the net in the parable are those drawn in by Jesus and the gospel of the kingdom. These are people who in this age are numbered with the Christians and have found belonging in the church. And it's from this pool of people that some will be judged and cast into fire. Now, I I think this is an important uh, emphasis to understand in this parable, that he is talking about people, he is addressing people, a pool of people who believe they are saved and believe they are safe. Uh, And it's from that pool of people that some will be judged. Now, that's not to say, by the way, that he's giving a free pass to anyone outside the church. That would be crazy to think that that's what uh, he's describing here. And in fact, totally inconsistent. He is talking about a coming judgment, which obviously extends to all people, but he's speaking here to his church, uh, to the ones that have, have been drawn and initially gathered. It's this pool of people that some will be, from which some will be judged and cast into fire. And so we find in, these, uh, in this parable a warning against presumption. But we have a problem <laughs> because Jesus has done an amazing thing. Uh, I use the language often of saying he has held nothing back in securing our salvation. Uh, He has purchased a salvation that can be relied upon with certainty. We should, in the Christian life, have full assurance of our salvation. Uh, Hope is tied to that. What would hope mean in the context of Scripture if it only meant wishful thinking? But no, hope means something more than that. It means a certainty, something you can hang on to, something that will come to pass, it just hasn't happened yet. What would... And, and so uh, there's this danger uh, that by, by uh, arguing too much against presumption, and you know what I mean by presumption, it's sort of like a, a self-secure pride uh, and, and, and belief that perhaps you're worth it. Perhaps I belong after all because of something I've done or because of who I am. But if, if we only ever attack presumption and say and cause people to question the certainty of their salvation, then we can begin to undermine the sure and certain work that Jesus accomplished on the cross and that he sealed for us when he rose from the dead. And yet Jesus does both. And so we do both at different times depending on what passage comes up in Scripture. And we bounce off the bumpers uh, so that we can uh, try and hopefully get it right. Uh, If we steer too far towards presumption, then hopefully uh, we get uh, frightened a little bit out of it uh, and comforted with the certainty uh, of salvation in Jesus. But if we go too far and try and frighten people out of security, then we can undermine their assurance of salvation and cause people to question uh, whether Jesus really does love me. Of course he loves you. He died for you. We can be sure of these things. So there's dangers of taking these things uh, too far. But let's, since the passage is about presumption, let's talk about 
presumption, just a few things. Um, because the people that Jesus is speaking to in his day are, are, are Jewish people, often very proud people. Not, And again, this is not to say that Jewish people are proud. This is to speak about the Jewish authorities in particular who hated Jesus. Very proud, very sure of themselves, uh, very, uh, very prone to looking down on others because their lives were better or they had more uh, uh, religious credentials than the people beside them. And for you and I today, there might be something similar. Maybe you belong to something like Presbyterian royalty, which is kind of funny when you know how small the Presbyterian church really is. Uh, but uh, I've heard those words uh, because... Uh, and, and, it's, and I've heard those words spoken tongue-in-cheek. But if you live in a small denomination and operate in a small denomination like the Presbyterian church long enough, you'll get to know certain names. And then you'll recognise those names when that person's kid rocks up or something like that. If you belong to another denomination, perhaps you're familiar with, uh, with this sort of idea. And sometimes the kids of pastors or the kids with the right surname can start to think, I'm safe, you know, I pretty much own the joint. My dad's up there or my dad's done this or my mum's done this week in, week out. So maybe your presumption is on the grounds of family your religious credentials or the name that people uh, already expect of you. Well, that is a great danger, partly because of the expectation that that can heap on a child or a small person, but partly because of uh, the expectation that that child can take on themselves, uh, even into adulthood. I'm all right. I've got the right name. People can presume on reputation. People People basically think well of me. Therefore, I should be all right. I'm pretty well liked. I'm invited to the right weddings and the right parties. Surely God will like me too. But we all know that especially in this day and age, a a person's reputation can be doctored. And people frequently do uh, curate their own reputation, uh, putting forward what others see uh, so uh, so that others will see only what you want them to see. And so reputation is a, is a very thin thing to pin your hope on, certainly not a thing to presume upon. Here's one I'm sure you've heard a lot. Uh, people can presume on ignorance. Uh, people, uh, uh, people who uh, seem very confident in agnosticism these days. Agnosticism is uh, that uh, religious position that says, well, you know, maybe there's a God out there, but we can't really know him. I don't really know for sure. And then just this total carelessness about what that God might think of them. And a sort of a strange overconfidence that, well, if there's a God out there, he might, he'd probably think I'm all right. People presume on ignorance, and ignorance is no defence. People presume often on a God that they don't even know. People will call on the God of the Bible as saying, you know, like I know one thing about God, he's love, isn't he? He's he's meant to be forgiving. Well, I'll be all right. He'll look after me. And that is true of God. He is loving and forgiving. But people presume on the snapshot that they choose of him and don't get to know the God on whom they're presuming upon as a danger. Where then is assurance? There is assurance in Jesus, in the Son of the King, in knowing him, uh, in loving him, 
in believing in him, in following him. And that assurance, as I've already talked about, is rock solid in the son who gave himself for you and who lives now in heaven with the Father. Part of this whole theme of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus picks up in the New Testament, and as I've said, it's a huge theme in the Gospels, uh, is, as I've said, Jesus picking up on the language that was already existing when he arrived. People were already talking about the kingdom. Uh, The Jewish people were looking forward to the coming kingdom. And they were looking forward to the coming kingdom with a sense of safety and security, as if this kingdom will come for our benefit and the Romans will be turfed out, and our enemies will be destroyed. And the main subjects of judgment are the people outside of us, the people who aren't circumcised, the people who don't follow the food laws. And Jesus comes in to undermine their presumption and says the kingdom uh, will arrive in judgment, and some of those who will be judged are those who think they're in and who think they're safe. Friends, if I've harmed your sense of assurance, uh, speak to me. I hope that that's certainly not my goal. Um, but it is good for us uh, to question where it is our assurance lies and let it not be in ourselves or our reputation or our family or the name we belong to or a God that we don't know. Let our assurance rest in Jesus and his work for us. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that we can be sure of salvation. We can be certain uh, of your love. Uh, We don't just hope in the idea of a God who is merciful, but we have evidence of your mercy. Uh, You gave your son, you held nothing back. He died for us and he lives and we can know these things for sure. Help us to put our trust in him alone. Help us to repent of our own presumption. Help us to repent of thinking too highly of ourselves or putting our faith in stupid things. Help us to trust in the Lord Jesus and we thank you for him. Amen.